Good morning. Good to see you this morning. I'll say again, good to hear you this morning. And I love to hear people singing about Jesus. Uh, Tyrone, great job on uh, on that song. Um, we're glad you're here. If you're a guest of ours, we're glad you're here too. Glad you chose to worship with us today. I heard a story about a, a city kid who went to visit his uncle on the farm one day and he looked out across the field and he said, wow, that's a big bunch of cows over there. And his uncle said, uh, herd. The little city kid said, herd what? He said, a herd of cows. And the kid said, of course I've heard of cows. That's a big bunch right over there. You know, that story kind of reminds me that whether we admit it or not, and some of you might want to argue with me on this, but whether you admit it or not, we have conversations all the time with people who know more than we know. Anybody want to admit that today? You have conversations with people who know more than you know. You know, I talk to somebody about my computer, and they'll start talking like I'm understanding what they're saying, and I'm not, but I nod my head and smile. But I understand they know more than I know. I'll talk to my, uh, to my uh, mechanic, and he'll start talking about things that he thinks I'm understanding. But I don't know. And all I really want to know is how much is this going to cost me? You know more than I know. i got no problem with that, okay? This morning, we are going to take a look at three conversations that Jesus has with three different groups of people. And everybody in these groups all have the conviction that they know more than Jesus knew. And all three of these groups, ironically, they're all religious groups. They're all religious people that come and talk to Jesus. And they all have the exact same agenda. They have the same motive. They want to discredit Jesus. They want to prove Jesus to be a fraud. They want to prove that they know more than Jesus knows. So go ahead and be open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 22. We're going to stay right there today. And we're going to listen in as Jesus is confronted by three different groups of people. Again, their whole intention is to trap Jesus, to discredit Jesus, to trick him. Why? Because they want to prove they know things Jesus doesn't know. And they want to prove that because Jesus isn't following their agenda. Jesus isn't playing by their rules, and it bothers them. In fact, it bothers them a lot. And they're beginning to lose their influence. And they're understanding Jesus isn't acting like we think He should act. And he's not doing the things that we think He should do. He's not saying the things that we think He should say. So they want to make Jesus look bad so they look good. So let's pick it up. Uh, we're in verse 15 is where we're going to start. Matthew chapter 22, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. Now before you go any further, you sort of got to ask yourself the question, who would do that? Why would anyone go out and try to trap Jesus in his words? Now as you read through this text, the audacity and the arrogance of the people who approach Jesus. You just can't miss it. They think they can manipulate Jesus. They think they can control Jesus. 
And before we even get into the conversations, let's pump the brakes just a little bit. Let's hit the pause button for just a second. We read comments like that. They were not laid plans to trap him in his words. And we think, who would do that? I mean, who do they think they are? But before we get too comfortable where we are and where we're sitting, I'll suggest to you, people do that all the time still today with Jesus. People are still trying to manipulate Jesus. People are still trying to control Jesus. People do it all the time. People try to control God. I'm going to confess to you, I've done it before. And I would be very surprised if you haven't done it before as well. People are always trying to cut deals with God. Always trying to manipulate God. God, if you do this for me, I'll do that for you. God, if you help me get the job, or the grade, or the girl, I'll love you more. God, if you change this situation, if you allow this outcome to, to be what I want it to be, I'm going to serve you more faithfully. And essentially what we're saying is, God, I want you to use your power to make my life turn out just like I want my life to turn out. And that's sort of where these people have been with Jesus. But again, Jesus isn't playing along. So now they're going to set them up. They're going to trick them. They're, they're convinced they know more than Jesus knows. But everybody in these three groups that are going to come and approach Jesus, they never do really understand who they're talking to. And they certainly don't believe that they're talking to the Son of God. So let's hit the play button and, and take a look at the text. Verse 16. They sent their disciples. By the way, these are the Pharisees' disciples, okay? It's like the JV team of the Pharisees. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. The Herodians were a group of people who believed that the Jews should be submitting to Rome. So you got two very different groups approaching Jesus. The Pharisees who wanted nothing to do with Rome, and the Herodians who were, if not sympathetic, at least respectful of Rome. And these two groups say, we've got a question for Jesus. And we spent a lot of time on this question. It's the perfect question to trick him, because there's no answer that he can give that we can't trip him up on. When we ask this question that we're about to ask, he's going to either have to side with the Pharisees or with the Herodians. And when he does, the other side is going to go after him. We've got him on this perfect question. Here's the question. Teacher, they said, we know you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Oh my goodness. They didn't believe any of that. They didn't think that about Jesus. They're just setting them up for the perfect question. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now you need to understand the tax they are talking about was the poll tax. Every Jew had to pay this tax and they hated it. They hated it because it was a constant reminder that they were not in charge. That Rome was in control. This was a constant reminder they were not in charge of their own destiny. 
They were under the submission of Rome. And it's interesting, the question they asked Jesus. They don't ask, should we pay taxes to Rome? They didn't ask that question. They asked, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Well, what's the difference? You know, what's the big deal? It's a big deal. Because Caesar had set himself up and claimed to be a god. And what a lot of Jews believed was, if we are giving taxes in support of Caesar, we are sort of validating his blasphemous claim that he's deity. This wasn't just a civil issue for these Jews. This was a, this was a moral issue. This was a religious issue. Now, 2,000 years later, we still sort of agonize over what we're supporting with our tax dollars, don't we? Verse 18, But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites! Why are you trying to trap me? Jesus knew exactly what they were up to. Jesus knew their hearts, just like He knows your heart. Jesus knew their intentions, just like He knows your intentions. Verse 19, Show me the coin. Which, by the way, is where we get, show me the money. Didn't know that, did you? It's from Jesus. Show me the coin used for paying the tax. Now, don't miss the obvious here. They're already paying the tax. They're already using Roman currency. They've already bought into the Roman economy. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, whose portrait is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Right. You got a coin, it's got Caesar's picture on it, it's got Caesar's inscription on it. Then he said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And then he's going to give them some more information that they didn't ask for, but they really needed to hear. And to God, what is God's? You give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but you give to God what belongs to God. Quit playing games. Quit fooling around. Quit trying to manipulate God. Quit trying to get God to look like you want Him to look and act like you want Him to act. You give to God what belongs to God. And look how it ends. When they heard this, they were amazed. They'd spent a long time coming up with this question. They thought they had it. This is great. We're going to ask a question, and we've got them. It's foolproof. However, He answers, we're going to have them. He can't say the right thing. And with one sentence, Jesus dismantles the whole argument. So they left him and went away. And I would like to think they went away asking, who thought up that stupid question? <laughs> <laughs> Whose idea was that? We look like a bunch of fools here talking to Jesus. Score, Jesus won, religious leaders zero. Next verse. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, which is why they are sad, you see. <laughs> so a second group comes to Jesus with another scenario. They think this scenario is going to be foolproof as well. They're going to share it with Jesus, and Jesus isn't going to know what to say. They're going to confuse Jesus, and they're going to prove that they know more than Jesus. So they think. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, 
Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him, which is what Moses taught, by the way. And they're going to use Moses' teaching to prove to Jesus just how ridiculous this idea of the resurrection really is. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. Same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, which they didn't believe in, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Take your time. Think it over. Because there is no right answer to this question, Jesus. We've spent a long time coming up with this question. And you're going to have to concede we are right. You're right. The resurrection can't make sense. It's too convoluted. It's too confusing. They think they've got them. Verse 29. Jesus replied, You're in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. Now this is really practical. Jesus says you're in error because you don't know the Scriptures. Wait a minute, that's all they did was study the Scriptures. Now how could he, how could he say these people don't know the Scriptures? That's all they did. He says, no, you've missed something. Not only have you missed something, you don't know the power of God. You think because you've come up with a scenario where you don't know the answer, you think there is no answer. And you think because you've come up with a scenario that you can't understand it, that no one can understand it. You don't know the power of God. Just because you don't know doesn't mean nobody knows. And just because you can't understand it doesn't mean that it can't be understood. You have severely underestimated the power of God. Now, you know why that's relevant to us today? Because maybe you're here this morning and you've sort of resisted God. And you've resisted God's Word. And you've got some questions, which is fine. That's, that's great. But you've kind of taken the position of, since I don't know, I don't think anybody knows. And since I don't really understand it, I don't think it can be understood. And without meaning to, you have allowed your arrogance, if I can use that word, to say, until I have every single one of my questions answered, I'm not going to trust God. I am never going to take a step in faith. Substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Because I want every single answer Question answered. I want it all to make perfect sense to me. Since I don't know, I don't think anybody knows. And since I don't understand it, I don't think it can be understood. And since I can't explain it, I think there is no explanation. So I'm going to walk by sight, not by faith. And I think Jesus would say the same thing to you as he said to these Sadducees. You have seriously underestimated the power of God. Verse 30. 
At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. Now, I've got to confess, I don't really love that verse. Because it makes it sound like there's not going to be marriage in heaven. I don't love that verse. Maybe your marriage is such that you like that verse. I don't like that verse. But I I am convinced of this. Heaven is going to be a significant upgrade, whether you're married or not. Okay? I don't understand that part of it. But what Jesus is saying is, you're assuming something that's just not true. Then he goes on to say this, but about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? And again, of course they've read what God said. They've read everything that God has said to them. That's what they did, was read what God said to them. And Jesus is going to take one of the best-known passages out of the Old Testament, a passage that they had known all their lives. They memorized long ago. And with that well-known passage, with the use of a verb tense, he's going to prove the resurrection. Have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And they're thinking, yeah, we've read that. We've read that a thousand times. You can read it, by the way, Exodus 3.6. Well, what's the relationship of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to Moses? It's easy. Moses came along long after those patriarchs died. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived long before Moses was around. And Jesus would say, that's right. And when God spoke to Moses, did God say, I was the God of Abraham? I was the God of Isaac? I was the God of Jacob? Because if they no longer exist, then he was their God. But God said, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. And then he sums it up with, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus dismantles their whole theology on a verb tense. On a passage that they'd read a thousand times, they were just sure they knew and they understood. And Jesus says, you're in error because you don't know the Scriptures. And you don't know the power of God. Then notice the result. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at His teaching. Who is this guy? And again, I would like to think that the Sadducees walked away going, who came up with that scenario? Seven brothers married to the same lady. Come on. We look ridiculous. Score, Jesus two. Religious leaders, zero. But there's one more conversation. Verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. Now remember, it was the Pharisees who sent their disciples along with the Herodians to Jesus with coin question. That didn't work out too well. And they've watched as Jesus has dismantled the Sadducees with their scenario. And that didn't work out too well. So the Pharisees are going to take another run at Jesus. But they're not sending in the JV team this time. They're sending in the big gun. They're not playing around anymore. They're serious about showing just who Jesus is and how wrong he is. They're sending in an expert in the law. One of them, an expert in the law. This is the guy. If there's any questions about the law, if there's any argument about the law, we just waited for him to talk because he was the expert. 
He is the go-to guy with all things spiritual. He's the guy when he speaks, everybody listens. You all discuss it as long as you want, and then this guy will tell you what it really is. He is the man when it comes to scriptural things. One of them, an expert in the law. By the way, Jesus is going to shut this guy down so fast, we're not exactly sure what his angle even was. But one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. So we know it was a test. We know his agenda was the same as the Sadducees and the Herodians. He wants to discredit Jesus. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Pick one. And again, I'm not exactly sure where this guy's going with this. But if he's trying to test Jesus, I am sure whatever commandment Jesus chooses, he's got to retort. Whatever commandment Jesus might pick, this guy is going to have a comeback for him to show that he knows more than Jesus. He is going to prove, whatever Jesus chooses, that we, specifically he, is the real expert in the law. Verse 37. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And before the expert can even respond, Jesus says, and, I'm not finished speaking, and, there's something else you really need to hear, and, you ask for one, I'm going to give you the second, and, the second's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus is going to give these men and us an invaluable insight into his hermeneutic, his interpretation of Scripture. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Jesus said the whole law, all of it, deals with loving God and loving others, period. That's my answer. Love God, love others. And the expert in the law didn't have anything to say because he realized Jesus was right. I mean, they had laws on top of laws on top of laws on top of laws. And Jesus says, it is all about loving God and loving other people as much as you love yourself. And while they are still standing around amazed at Jesus' teaching, Jesus decides to draw this thing to a close. So he's going to ask them a question. By the way, Jesus score three, religious leaders zero. Jesus is ready to wrap this thing up. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They all knew this. Every hand went up. Son of David, they replied. A Messiah would come from the lineage of David. Everybody knew that. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? David refers to the Messiah as Lord. For he says, then Jesus quotes Psalm 110, very famous psalm, a psalm they would have known, a, a very messianic, uh, prophetic psalm. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? And what Jesus is asking is, how can the Messiah come from the lineage of David? How can the Messiah be a descendant of David, and yet David calls the Messiah Lord? 
I mean, follow the logic. The Messiah had to be alive when David was alive. So how could it be a descendant of David? Well, the only way that could happen would be for the Messiah to leave heaven and come to earth as a man. Which is a really significant point that Jesus is making. Even beyond the obvious. Because there were a lot of Jews who didn't necessarily believe that the Messiah was going to be divine. God was going to send a Messiah and he might be a military guy, he might be political, he would certainly be revolutionary. But there were some Jews who weren't convinced he was going to be deity. And Jesus says, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the Messiah has to be divine. The Messiah has to have existed before David. And that's Jesus' claim here. I existed before David. At the end of John 8, Jesus would say, I existed before Abraham. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus' claim is, I am the eternal Messiah, the divine Son of God. And then notice how Matthew concludes these three conversations. No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. I love that. From that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Why not? Because they understood they were in the presence of greatness. And they understood we can't trick, and we can't manipulate, and we can't control this man. Because this isn't just a man. We are in the presence of greatness. And you don't pretend, you don't trick, you don't manipulate, you don't deal, you don't barter, you don't trade. You don't approach God with some kind of sense of entitlement. And you don't approach God with with your own agenda. God, you do this, I'll do that. I'm going to control you. I'm going to manipulate, manipulate you. When you approach God in prayer, in worship, in study, in contemplation, we have got to realize we are in the presence of greatness. We are coming before the holy, righteous, all-knowing, all-powerful God. And He doesn't need us to tell Him how to do His job. There's nothing that we know that God doesn't already know. We don't understand the power of God. And the same reason why people don't approach God that way today is the reason they didn't approach God that way 2,000 years ago. Because of ignorance and arrogance. Ignorance because we don't understand Scriptures. We don't really know the Scriptures. And arrogance because somehow we believe that we know things that God doesn't know. We kind of understand things and see things a little more clearly then God might be able to see things. That's arrogance. To say, God, you know, get out of my life. I'll call you when I need you. That's arrogance. Now, the lesson for this morning isn't don't ask hard questions. And the lesson isn't don't ask God to intervene in your life. It certainly isn't stay away from God. Just the opposite. The lesson for today is as we go to God in prayer, in worship, 
in study, in contemplation. So we go to God with our needs and our wants and our concerns and our questions. We've got to realize that we are in the presence of greatness. That we are coming before the all-powerful creator of heaven and earth. And the lesson is, I will never allow my arrogance or my ignorance to treat God in any way other than He deserves to be treated. God of heaven, the all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful Jehovah God. And you know what that looks like practically? It's right in the text here. It means you give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but you be sure you give to God what belongs to God. And that's not just all that I have. That's all that I am. All of my heart. All of my soul. All of my strength. God gets me. He gets all that I am. He gets my life. You know what that looks like in real life? It means coming to Him acknowledging, okay, I don't have all the answers, but I know you do. And I can't explain every single thing, but I know there, that doesn't mean there's not an explanation. You're God and I'm not. I'm going to walk by faith, not by sight. And I'm not going to apologize for that. I'm okay with that because I'm serving an all-knowing, all-powerful God. You know what that looks like in real life? It looks like the greatest command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. It looks like the second greatest commandment. Love people the way you love yourself. You know what it looks like in real life? And I know I didn't do a very good job of explaining this today, but it looks like a God who loves us so much that He was willing to send the eternal Messiah to leave heaven, to come to earth, to die on a cross for arrogant, ignorant sinners like me. That's what it looks like in real life. This morning... Maybe you've been resisting God. Maybe you've been, been pushing back, trying to manipulate God. I'll remind you, you won't win. He's still undefeated. And the truth is, and the unbelievable truth is, that He desperately wants to call us His children. And He wants us not just to call Him Jehovah God, He wants us to call Him Father. He wants us to come with an obedient heart. Let me end with a quote from Timothy Keller. I like it a lot. All other gods say, fail and you will die. Our God says, fail and I will die for you. All other religions say, our God is too great to die. Christianity claims, our God is so great, He willingly died. We serve the one true powerful God. This morning, you be sure you give God what belongs to God. All of your heart. All of your soul. All of your strength. When we approach Him, we don't approach Him with any sense of entitlement. We approach Him because of grace and mercy. Humbly, sincerely. This morning, Remember the great God that we serve and the great God that is calling you home, calling you to come. This morning, won't you come home?
Let's stand and sing.